Welcome everyone to the Law and Society podcast, brought to you by the City Law School at City University of London. The City Law School's Law and Society podcast is co-hosted by me, Dr. Sabrina Germain, Senior Lecturer at the City Law School, and me, Dr. Adrienne Young, also Senior Lecturer at the City Law School. Each episode, we will be interviewing a guest to speak about their expertise on issues relating to the law, the rights stemming from the law, and most importantly, how context matters to all this. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, everyone. Welcome back for episode number four of the City Law School's Law and Society podcast with me, Dr. Adrian Young. And me, Dr. Sabrina Germain. Episode four today is a little bit of a different one. We're talking about critical race theory. And for this episode, Sabrina and I decided that we'd rather have a conversation on this theme as it is particularly central to our collaborative research together and very much in our lives as socio-legal scholars. We look at issues of race and gender and we thought that it would be fantastic to just have a little bit of a chat about it. Oh, yes. I'm so excited about this one, just like any other episode, to be honest. But this one is particularly nice because we're so interested in it, right? So we always start off all our episodes, as you know, Adrian, by asking our guests the big question of how they would define the concept of law. So uh, I was thinking, let's do it now again, because I've answered um, with my response in episode two. So um, can I turn it to you this time and ask you the same question? Definitely. I'm very excited about answering it. A very interesting question, of course. And we've had so many interesting answers on the podcast already. And I have been really thinking about it and getting inspired by all of these answers. I think that my take on this question is a take that incorporates everybody's answers so far and also comes through in our own research. So my take on the question of how to define the concept of law is that it's a system of power and governance, which is made up, and I think this is quite a traditional view, it's made up of rules, it's made up of regulations, it's made up of norms, and these rules, these regulations, and these norms, they can become codified. So, you know, written down somewhere, whether it's actually written or just, you know, accepted. I think that is um, what I mean by codified. And it's definitely at least widely accepted by society at large. And I know that this is not what everyone thinks when they think of law, but I definitely think the element of power is quite an important one. And the reason why is because I believe law is a way that we are ordered in society and based on norms that society have developed over time. And this is something that has happened, whether we are aware of it or not. And this really informs my view that it's very important to ensure that those who have a say in making the law must be included. And I think that's what you and I do, Sabrina, right? We want to make sure we're including as a wide diversity of voices as possible because the way um, norms can be represented in the law, and I would like it to represent as many parts of society as possible. Now, 
I think law also has a bit of a dual function, which we've talked a lot about uh, in these in the podcast episodes, and we continue to talk about throughout. I think that it can serve to determine what justice and fairness is. And of course, you can say a lot more to that as the expert on justice. And we have talked about it in, in various episodes, and I think that it will come through a little bit more later on, especially in today's conversation. But the dual function element that I want to talk about, and I believe law is kind of defined through or defined on, is that it is also sometimes a source of injustice. So it's not just justice that it can uh, create or promote. It's also where injustices come about. And that's a sad fact, I think, perhaps a little bit negative, but something we have to consider. And maybe again, I think I've come become a little bit critical um, and cynical over my years of being a legal academic analyzing things in a very critical way. We ask you know, many people to think about it in a critical manner, our students certainly. And we, especially you and I, do a lot of things from looking at um, the law from various angles, such as the feminist angle uh, or you know, the intersectional angle or the race angle. Or for me particularly, I do a lot of work for migrants and immigrants, so from the angle of migrants. But mainly, for me at least, a lot of views come from the minority. And when it comes from the minority, a lot of the time I found, sadly, that the law does not really represent lesser voices. But I think it has so much potential to do so, and it just needs to be reshaped. So that's my positive spin on you know, my definition of law. If I think that it can have a bit of injustice as well as justice, it can create justice. It just needs to be reshaped. And I definitely see that as my role as a legal academic. And I think that's what you and I both agree that we do in our research. Wow, an excellent answer. I think you're spot on. I think you gave a very good introduction as well as uh, to what we're going to be talking about today. I think it's really important to understand that aspect of being critical about the law, about this very powerful tool um, that we discuss as legal academics and others use, uh, politicians and lawmakers, um, in trying to shape our society. And I think you're absolutely right of this dual function. It's giving me a lot uh, to think about more critically. And that's what we're going to be doing today, I guess. So I think we can start now digging a little bit deeper, maybe ties in nicely with just a very broad definition of law and looking to explain to our listeners what we understand about the idea of critical legal studies. So Professor Luke Mason talked about this a little bit in our first episode, but I think it would be very useful for our listeners if you can revisit this concept or or this approach or um, school of thought. I don't know how you can define it. And then we can have a little chat about it maybe as it is very interesting and quite a crucial movement in law and legal academics. Yes, absolutely. I think that certainly, you know, you I know you have very good and interesting views on this as well. Um, and conversation is what we're having. But for our listenings, just to be clear, because we're going to start it all off nicely, uh, critical legal studies, also known as CLS, which is certainly not to be confused with the City Law School, which is also CLS, is exactly what it says on the tin. Critical legal studies are critical studies of the law. Now, what does that actually mean, of course? And it's and we always tell people, you know, you, you should not define things um, by using the word that is in the actual word. So I'm not going to define critical legal studies by saying it's a legal studies, which is critical. But sometimes people do get confused about what this actually means. So in this context, I actually think critical really means almost 
to criticize. So criticize is a very negative term. So what do I actually mean by that? What do we mean by that? I think that we should not take things at face value. And we should not just accept things without looking a little bit more deeply or critically at things. Okay, so hang on. You're saying that all we've been taught over time as the law applies to us all equally, that we should not be ignoring the law. I really remember this from um, when I was in law school in France and I was taught no one should be ignoring the law. You should be really aware. It's not an excuse coming in front of a police officer or a judge saying, oh, I didn't know about this regulation. I didn't know about this law. So you're saying that we should not be taking that at face value, that the law is not all that it seems? Is that what critical legal studies do? Well, we certainly should not use the excuse in front of a police officer that we didn't know the law. That's not going to get us anywhere. But I think absolutely, I don't know, what do you think, Sabrina? I think we, we can't take things at face value. We have to look more deeply. Sometimes things are not always as they seem. I think that's the very disturbing fact that we learn as PhD students, right? I think that's where the journey began for us as academics is that we used to, um, as good law students, take a little bit law at face value, I believe, um, because I think law school was a bit different when I went to law school and um, I didn't have um, beautiful modules uh, that were contextualizing the law, as we see, for example, at City. But what I was taught is there's a legislator, it's the voice of the people, and therefore it's right. So it's quite black letter law, right? That's the vision I had. However, now looking at things very differently and being a sociolegal scholar that has a critical look, I don't, I'm not sure I would call myself a critical legal scholar. And I'm pretty sure my colleagues and friends that are critical legal scholar wouldn't see me as such. And we'll see why. But I do think that we really do need to be more critical of the law, just because, as you said, the law is an instrument of power. As much as it can reconcile inequalities, it can dig them further as well, right? We're, we're going to see a lot of that today. So I think you're absolutely right. We should really have a hard look at the law. And that's what makes our jobs so interesting, I think. Absolutely. And that's why I wanted to be a bit more careful about using the word criticize, because I think that is where critical legal studies comes from. Thinking about it in a more critical and almost critical criticizing kind of way but we're not saying oh the law is no good and we're going to ignore it and you come in front of a police officer and you say I don't know what the law is and we get away with everything but it's almost neglectful in a way for us just to say the law is this and that's what it is and we're not going to criticize it or look let's say look deeper let's let's use that that term because I like that a bit more and it's not so negative it doesn't have so much, so much of a connotation but I think that you're absolutely right. You've hit the nail on the head, Serena. We're going to talk a lot more about this today. I also would have to say that I may not be considered a full-fledged critical legal scholar like some people are, but I think we're working towards being more critical and that's going to make our research so much stronger. And that's why we're getting so much attention and we have so much originality because we're looking at it from the angle of people who don't always have their voices heard. So building on this idea of critical uh, legal studies and criticizing and, and the non very, you know, the, the negative stance that critical or criticize brings, CLS is actually premised, the critical legal studies that is premised on the idea that judicial decision making is actually not 
politically neutral. So I suppose we could say that we're trying to look beyond, yeah, neutrality, because sometimes people think that's what law is, you know, that it's just neutral, it's not got any viewpoints in, in a way, it applies equally to everybody, and maybe that's its point. But I think critical legal studies is bringing out this idea that that's just not true, and that's what the premise is. Judicial decision-making in the courts by judges, by you know people applying the law and policy, let's say police officers, anyone on the street, it's not politically neutral. And we, you and I, Serena, are definitely exploring this in this podcast today and in all of our episodes, given society is the context in which law exists. Because judicial decision-making and lawmaking is not done in a vacuum, and that is something that everybody can accept, we have to understand, therefore, the context. If it's not a vacuum, then it's got a different context. And we must understand that context, when decisions are made, whether that's, you know, in creating the law and the legislation itself, or in case law judgments, it's just never neutral as much as they're supposed to be or try. So essentially, are you saying that critical legal scholars are conspiracy theorists in a way? Or um, or maybe it's not that um, caricatural. I guess, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that I think that critical legal studies is unveiling some of the power interests behind the lawmaking process. And that's where you see really law as a power dynamic, but also something very powerful, right? It's a very powerful instrument um, because it can be used to sway people, um, to uh, drive personal interest even. Um, and uh, also on a positive note, like you said, to reconcile and, and hear the minority voices that sometimes are underlying and then brought to the fore sometimes by the law if it does a proper job, right? So I guess it's not so much a conspiracy theory as a clear vision of reality, right? It's kind of more a focused, sharper look at this tool rather than just taking it for what it is. What do you think? Yeah, very, very good way to put it. Um, I can I can see how our other guests on the podcast now are grilled by our difficult questions and and because you know we're we're playing all these devil advocate voices. I know you don't think that law is a conspiracy theory, but it's certainly something to be to think about. And you know, you've answered it. I, I definitely agree with you. It's it's not a conspiracy theory, but it is a way to more sharply look at things, definitely. And I think sometimes when we study law as law, law students back in the day, we are we are taught so much just here's what law is. And you coming from a civil law background, um, when you did your studies in France, in France, in these civil law countries, they have a code and everything is written down. And so therefore you have this massive book, all the code is in there, and that's it. And you read the code and you memorize it and then you regurgitate it and then you become a lawyer. But I would like to think that you and I are doing something a little bit different by digging deeper, sharpening the focus and not just saying, here's your book of law, memorize it. And now you're a perfect lawyer and that's the end of it. I think it's really interesting to to talk about this and, and um, it's going to be interesting also to look at what critical race theory a little bit later on is and how um, it was a North American phenomenon. Because what you're saying about civil law, I'm not saying that continental European lawyers are not critical, far from, from me saying that there's a very big uh, trend of critical legal theory from Italy, for example. But what I think is very interesting is that exactly that's how I, how I was taught my law. Um, I remember very famous 
famously sitting in my um, first year contract law module and being told, Sabrina, there's no mystery. Everything is in the code. You don't know it. Just look at the code. Exactly. And then you get very puzzled when you get to your third year module elective on competition law and you're looking at decisions and you're thinking, well, that was not in the code, was it? Um, so, <laughs> so it's interesting to, to see how we're so attached to that book in France or other jurisdictions that have a, a code. But in the end, what's in the code is the results of people's um, power play in a way or dialogue or compromise. Definitely. So I think it, we have to be looking a little bit deeper than just what's in the code or looking at very carefully at what is what is in the code, if I, that makes more sense. Yes, certainly. I think as well in the UK context, since we don't have a written constitution and no code in a common law jurisdiction, uh, sometimes in law schools, it's people thinking, oh, what's in the book? Maybe what's in the textbook? And that's not always what we want to, to push students or, you know, even push thinkers to, to think about. But, you, you know, as you mentioned, and you're also a very good person to have this chat with because you have a background in a U.S. law school, you have a background in the civil law jurisdiction, and then you come from a bi-jurisdictional jurisdiction, and we now are working in the common law jurisdiction, so lots of different sources. CLS emerged out of that, as you say, movement in North America out of the U.S. law schools, in particular in the context of a political and a cultural kind of challenge to the authority that they were facing in the law school itself. It was from a group of scholars of color who felt their experiences were just not reflected appropriately in educational institutional regulations. And that's where this all more critical thought came from. So again, they saw the law or they saw the regulations in their higher education institution, and they just thought, if we dig deeper, if we're critical of it, it's not really our experience. And so, in a way, the point of CLS, of critical legal studies, it's very strange to say CLS not to mean city law school, but we're going to try today. Um, in general, it's also to highlight the what is known as legal indeterminacy that exists. Now, this is a big concept, but it basically means that cases applying law don't always have one correct outcome, hence the indeterminacy bit. So again, we've mentioned it loads already today. It's not all black and white. And that's what a lot of people think sometimes when they think of the law. It's not just the case has a right or wrong answer. There's simply not that situation. It might be right, and that might be the correct uh, or the correct outcome. But for another person, they would not think it's correct or fair, for example, when we're always just looking for the most fair or the most correct outcome. And in a way, that's what we always ask our students to do. I think that ties in very nicely to the conversation we had in our first episodes when we were talking about sociolegal scholarship, because law is not a science. It's not a hard science. It's not physics. It doesn't apply systematically the same rules to get the same outcomes, because there's something about hard science that we can predict certain outcomes. Law is a social science, in my opinion, um, because it does depend, it's very context dependent. And that's why you can have the application of the same rule. And we see this a lot when we um, write our exams, for example, for our modules, 
we have different answers that could be of equal value with um, different outcomes in the decision, for example, in a fact pattern. So it's quite interesting to see how the students will play with the law, with the rule of law, apply it to the same set of facts, but from their perspective as judges, if you want, or um, if they're representing the plaintiff or the defendant, whatever it may be, um, they reach a different outcome because it is very context sensitive and there is an element of subjectivity. I think that's that's why I think that oftentimes people portray lawyers as liars, which I think is very offensive because we're capable of doing this intellectual gymnastic as uh, legal scholars, as practitioners. And that's what law school is all about, in my opinion. And I, I hope we have more chance to chat about legal education because I think it, it is very important to address it in this particular context, that we need to become more creative, more critical to be better lawyers, very strong believe in that. completely agree and I think it's so interesting yeah people definitely do sometimes think lawyers are liars or they're slippery or they're negative um, in so many different ways but it's it's not actually that it's I, I would say that it's probably just because of this high idea that the law is a bit legally indeterminate and of course Judicial decision-making is not politically neutral, so therefore you don't know which way the outcome perhaps, let's say, might swing. But if there was a right answer, then we wouldn't even need lawyers. Why would somebody try and defend one side versus the other if it's so black and white? So the idea of CLS, critical legal studies, loads and loads of sub-theories have stemmed from this, and we will consider all of these in other episodes. And I think that it's very interesting because it comes back to my point about power and what law is defined as, in my opinion, through power, coming from a consideration of the power relationship in the law, which we, we've talked about as well, you and I. It could arguably be one of the ways to define law generally, you know, this power relationship, if we go back to the, the answer to the first question that we ask everybody. So I think at this point, it is a very good time for us to make the distinction between critical legal studies and critical race theory, because that is what today's uh, episode is about. And I want to hand over to you, Sabrina, to say something about this. What is the distinction between critical legal studies, critical race theory, how are they connected, how are they different? Yeah, I was about to say, please, can I can I take this one? So as you said, critical legal studies, CLS, is a very big family, I would say. Um, I think you'd agree with me. Um, it has a big legacy. And um, critical race theory uh, is an approach or a school of thought that is sits within that family of critical legal studies. So critical race theory is one of the movement of critical legal studies. That's a lot of critical in, in one sentence, isn't it? But it's kind of the idea of um, you're, you have a rectangle and a square. Um, I'm doing a lot of that with my daughter at the moment. So that's why I'm quite inspired by, <laughs> by these forms. But it's a little bit the same as the shapes. The square is essentially a type of rectangle. So critical race theory is essentially one of the elements or part of that big family of critical legal studies. So critical race theory is is part of it, part of critical legal theory. And it looks particularly at the law through a very specific lens, which is race, to provide a critical perspective on the law. So you see, it, it, it's, it's really within that family. It, it has the same mission in a way. 
but it expands also beyond the law now. And it is applied, and this is where we have a lot of controversy at the moment. It applies to economics and also politics. Um, and I, I love uh, these things that connect to politics because of my background. But I think it's, it, it's interesting to understand the origin of the movement. And critical uh, theory builds on the insight of two previous movements. Critical legal studies, as I just said, and that movement was uh, influenced by postmodernism. And I won't go into the very detail of this because I'm no expert like Professor Luke Mason. He would be better suited than me to talk to you about postmodernism, but it's interesting. But it also builds on radical feminism. And I think that's why we're so interested in it, you and I, Adrian. And I think it sits perfectly at the intersection of our intellectual interest. On the one hand, you're a feminist legal scholar uh, with a lot of interest in intersectionality. Um, I also have this interest, but more up towards race. So I, I guess we're, we're together embodying. We're perfect together. Uh, yes, we are. I couldn't agree more. Um, so it's, it's a very interesting movement. So the founders were also American of this movement. Um, it's a um, professor and civil rights activist called Derek Bell and an American legal scholar, Richard, Richard Delgado, um, who is a professor still at the University of Alabama, um, the law school there. And he wrote this very foundational book entitled Critical Race Theory that would encourage everybody to have a look even just at the introduction of that great volume, because it, it just provides very simple and direct insights of what the theory is all about. So they thought of this as a movement, because it really um, sits on the legacy of the civil rights movements in the United States, and as a school of thought. So it's very interesting to look at it in that way. It's kind of a philosophy, a way of analyzing so you're saying that they didn't think of it as a theory at the outset? So you're saying it's a movement. That's slightly different from a theory. Absolutely. It's not like they were sitting in a corner um, thinking, oh, let's let's coin critical race theory. Um, it, it, it was um, very similar to critical legal study. It was kind of, as I say, they really sat uh, at the feet of um, the civil rights movement and they thought, well... That movement seems to have climaxed uh, in the 1960s, and now it's stalling a little bit in the 1980s. So in many respects, uh, they were looking at new um, strategies to try to combat very more, more subtle forms of racism. And I think that's quite interesting um, uh, to me, and especially in the, this current context that we have, is that there is blatant immoral racism. I think anybody doing a Nazi salute, for example, or having a svetsika, I think everybody would agree that it's that's despicable. But then there's underlying microaggressions that might not be um, seen by the majority um, as a, an act of blatant racism, but that is um, racist in a form. So um, that's something that we really need to, to dig a little bit deeper into, I think. Definitely. And I'm so looking forward to talking about this later on, because I think you and I are perhaps, sadly, perfect people to talk about these these issues and, and things that we do face and perhaps other people will resonate with us. And that's why I want to do it in this context, right? Absolutely. I think there's so much to unpack here. And I think I know we're both very passionate about it. It's very interesting because I think both of, of, of these founders were really looking into saying, well, yeah, we see we've made progress. We see we had a civil rights movement. You know, we, we condemn blatant racism, but there's more subtle forms of, res of racism that need to be still challenged that haven't been challenged. 
So basically, critical race theory wants to challenge the conventional strategy um, by pursuing social and economic justice. The, mov the movement really focuses on what we call anti-subordination. Um, and that's really something that's very fundamental to that theory. So basically, it means anti-subordination that we cannot achieve equality under certain conditions. So we need to challenge those conditions, okay? Let me explain to you because this touches on my in interest of justice. Basically, it means that we are told always, um, just like what we were saying before when we talk about critical race theory, that we should be all treated the same, equally in the same way. And I don't think anybody would challenge that, right? Like just we wouldn't challenge uh, blatant racism. We wouldn't challenge that. But we need to um, look at the nuances, the shades of gray, um, okay? It's not black and white, like you said. There are foundational structural inequality. And that those structural inequalities, those conditions that don't allow us um, to reach equality are there because we cannot reach substantive equality. So what we're saying is that treating everybody the same does not necessarily lead to fairness. Because if you're um, on a default position, you're in a context in which you already are unequal because of the structure of society, for example, or different levels of income, well, you cannot achieve what we call substantive equality. So you're saying, you said that it was incontrovertible that you think everybody should you know, be treated equally. And I was actually thinking, as you said that, that some people probably would disagree with that. And then you continue to say that we cannot actually do that because that's not going to achieve equality. But I was more thinking that some people, especially lawmakers perhaps out there, would think that we shouldn't treat everybody equally because some people perhaps deserve less or maybe some people deserve more. And you made a very good argument that we should give more rights to certain people because that will help achieve equality. And we can talk about that later on as well in the context of how do we, how do we achieve racial justice? But what do you say to this idea that actually some people would say, no, some people don't, we don't all deserve equality and some people deserve it less maybe. Yeah, the idea of dessert is is a huge uh, topic <laughs> in uh, legal theory. I'm I'm no expert. I I remember um, back in the days when I was doing my PhD, I went to to Cambridge for a session just on the idea of who is deserving. The idea, this concept of dessert. I'm no expert on this, but I can tell you something that speaks a lot to what you're saying, but I, I guess the flip side of the coin. I do believe that some people might not necessarily, it's not a question of deserving, but it's more a question that they should have more because they already have less. And um, I'm, I think that's deserving. I guess, I guess it may be. I think, I think we could invite so many other guests to, to discuss that one out. It's quite a, a deep and fundamental um, debate. But what's interesting is that, of course, I was not the only one thinking that, and most probably the first person that really reflected on this is, is John Rawls, right? He is all about thinking about substantive equality. And to him, um, fairness is about equality in outcome and equality in opportunity. That means that if you imagine somebody in a race, okay, and um, you keep on giving uh, a few meters uh, ahead to certain people, let's say everybody with brown hair uh, gets a chance to start the race a little bit further ahead of the people at, um, at the starting line. Well, 
the people that are at the starting line, they have to make up for this advance that the other ones have, right? So John Rawls says, well, how about we bring them up to the same level as the people that had a few meters ahead, or even we give them a few meters ahead even because they, just, they started late. So we give them even more. Um, that's the difference principle. And that's kind of where critical race theory stands with regards to race. It says we cannot be advocating for just blatant equality or blunt equality or orthodox equality, like we would say it in distributive justice. We have to advocate for anti-subordination, which aims to demonstrate that there are deep discrepancies or differences in wealth. And we cannot just treat people in the same way. We need to address the root of that inequality first to then achieve equality. So essentially, we need to eliminate the subordination and the marginalization, not just to look at treating races all the same, because they are, unfortunately, not all the same. I think that's where our critical hat comes in, right? That you are not just saying, here's what it is, here's the law, apply it equally across the board. Absolutely, because um, it doesn't apply equally across the board. I think that's what critical race theory is bringing up. Um, so it, it aims to unveil um, the root of inequalities uh, and particularly pointing the finger at the root of the equality that sits with white privilege because they're often linked to that. A lot of, really, of, of, of the inequality uh, stems from the relationship between race, racism and power in the United States and many of the Western world, unfortunately. But as I said, critical um, theory also stands on the shoulder of feminism. So we should not just be looking into power dynamics in terms of race. We should also be uh, looking at the insight of that, particularly, that, that particular um, movement as well. It provides insights uh, in the relationship of power and the construction of social roles, um, of course, gender roles, that are uh, sometimes uh, invisible patterns of, of power play. And the habits of looking uh, at these patterns in a certain way or a certain outlook often ingrains or cements the patriarchy uh, and other types of domination. So um, what's the patriarchy? Uh, I think we can speak a lot to that, you and I. But it, for the listeners that might not be aware that it's around, I'm pretty sure everybody sees it, but it's a system of society in which men hold more power than women or most of the power and women are largely excluded from it. And it's very hard when you start looking at the world in through that lens to, to ignore it and not see it everywhere. It's like an obsession for me now um, to see the patriarchy in all its forms. And we will talk more about this in episode number six. Yes, absolutely. So I think if we want just a simple definition, because I've been waffling around and um, telling you so much about critical race theory, but you might want to go to the essence of it. And if you want to go to the essence of it, let's take the words of Javier Trevino. And I hope I say his name correctly. He says that critical theory should be seen as advocating for justice for people who find themselves occupying positions on the margins. And I think that's a very good uh, definition. It's uh, not looking at just the core um, and its power. It's also looking at the margins and all the fuzzy things around. Um, and that, that's much more interesting, isn't it? So if I have to give you kind of a snapshot or a snippet of the basics of uh, the theory, I would say uh, they go along 
four main uh, lines or principles, if you want. Number one would be racism needs to be acknowledged as a normal part of society. So that means um, including uh, what I said that as inappropriate racism, blunt, inappropriate racism, and also colorblind inequality. And I think we will talk about this a little bit more in a moment. Uh, a lot of people saying, well, I don't see color. That's something that enrages a lot of people now in the US. This is no longer acceptable. I was watching this uh, very cringe TV show the other day. And, and one of the women said, I don't see color to um, an Asian American. And she got enraged. And it, it, was, it was good TV, but it was also symptomatic of what's going on in the American society and said, oh, really, you're that girl that doesn't see color? And then they started having an argument. Um, not so not so much uh, along the lines of, of critical legal scholars, but, but very interesting, though, that in pop culture, it, it transpires. So number one would be racism needs to be acknowledged. Number two would be race is a social construct. And I have so much to say about this one because... Ah, we're so oblivious to the fact that actually, yeah, race is a social construct. Three, racialization of society is based on the needs of the dominant, uh, what we would call white privilege. And fourth, we would say that racialization is based on the interest conversions. So that means that it is not only about the needs of the person in power, but that the person in power does not do anything unless it serves their self-interest. And that's quite interesting and also very cynical and quite pessimistic, but in certain aspects, true. Okay, so I've talked a lot about critical race theory. I'm very passionate about it, but I would say not everybody's on the same page as me or a critical uh, race theorist. So when it comes to it, could you tell us a little bit more, Adrian, that um, there are issues about critical race theory that some people have? Uh, and why do you think these issues with the theory come about? Yeah, definitely. We have to play a little bit of devil's advocate here. We've played devil's advocate in all of our other episodes with our guests. And as you were giving us the basic tenets of critical race theory, I think that some people might listen and think these are kind of negative aren't they you know nothing really quite positive or um yeah it doesn't seem to be achieving anything but to but to criticize i suppose and with the term critical race theory that's a fair comment to make but we have to play devil's advocate because we're good lawyers you and i and we want to present both sides of the argument However, of course, we're not just sitting on the fence here. I'm sure that our listeners can tell which side of the fence you and I sit on in regards to critical race theory. Anybody who knows us, any personally will know this as well. And I think our listeners will do by now. But when we present both sides of the argument as good lawyers, we always want to tell you, and that's what we encourage everybody to do really, to be good lawyers, is to tell you why we argue more for one of the sides as compared to the other. So the point of presenting both sides actually is, in this case, to debunk the claims against critical race theory. So I think that it'll be useful to go through them one, in, one by one. And then by and large, to me at least, and maybe you'll agree, Sabina, and our listeners will also agree, why really they can be debunked and why the against arguments are not really very strong. So let's start off with the argument that critical race theory focuses way too much on anecdotal evidence, 
it's therefore a little bit self-indulgent and sometimes a little bit too abstract. So this is kind of what we were talking about in the context of um, the fact that Derek Bell and Richard Delgado created critical race theory based off of their own experiences. And a lot of people argue against CRT in this way because it's largely based on voices and largely based on people's experiences of the law in this context through the lens of race. I think this is a flawed argument because at the outset, if we consider what people are thinking of as hard facts or even statistics, sometimes you could say hard facts and statistics are incontrovertible. Well, in my opinion, this is just not true because hard facts, statistics are not always representative of all voices, of all views, of all sides of the argument. And some might even go as far as to argue that the way institutions are set up to get facts and statistics, you can say it's totally out of context sometimes, and certainly they're used in this way sometimes. So I actually think this criticism is shutting down voices of people who are already quite invisible. So saying that it focuses too much on anecdotal evidence, I refute the whole basis of that kind of argument. I think it's absolutely, I can agree more. I think also it shuts down this really um, this view um, that critical race theory is trying to focus on, which is um, the microaggression. Um, because racism is not as bold and out there as we might think anymore. I think, uh, as we were just saying, uh, people condemn that. But saying that is just on an anecdotal basis really shuts down uh, the personal experience, which can be subject to actually quite traumatic and painful racism. And, and that can be because of the product of a rule that says, well, we're just going to apply it across the board for everybody. Why are you even upset? We're just going to give uh, a chance at, for example, uh, a job, and we're going to put a job ad saying we want uh, this type of qualification. But if, if you're advertising in a neighborhood where where you know uh, people are mainly underprivileged and there's a minority of white people, for example, that hold these qualifications, but the ethnic minority community didn't have a chance to qualify, for example, that is not actually a fair application of the law. This is actually just digging deeper inequalities. And it might be an anecdote saying, well, I didn't have the chance to go to this sort of training because of my background. Well, it's not an anecdote. It's actually a testimonial to the application of uh, social inequalities in that society. Exactly. And I think that that's why we can't shut down these voices. And this this whole this argument just shuts down CRT in its entirety. So, you know, what I'm trying to do is shut that down. So the other argument against CRT is that it focuses too much on uh, the black white diaspora. And this is from Javier Trevino. I think that this used to be a fairly legitimate point. And this was likely a criticism that was levied because CRT originated in the US. And, you know, Sabrina, you can talk more about the history of the US, but I think we all, you know, know that there was certainly a lot of history geared towards this black versus white kind of argument. And a lot of discussion has ensued from this criticism. And I actually think the reason why this used to be a legitimate argument and is not anymore is because CRT generally has accepted this discussion, this argument, 
and has therefore in the recent years become more inclusive and now actually definitely includes more than just the black white kind of argument. It may not be considered actually just critical race theory anymore as well, but it's become wider than that. So things like critical queer studies, uh, Latinx studies, Asian, critical Asian studies, those kinds of things, they're all under the critical legal studies heading. And that's how we got away from it just being about the black community against the white community. In significant contrast to that, we also see an argument that being colorblind, i.e. not seeing color, is something which assumes that the races are homogenous. So this is from Delgado. It's a widely made argument and something that Sabrina touched on that needs to be considered in great detail because loads and loads of people argue that we should not see race because if we see race, then everybody cannot be treated the same way. And you just say, you know, by seeing race, you're creating racism. And my argument is that the reality is that sadly, we do see race. People see race, you know, it's just there. There is racism. We see race even if we don't want to. And therefore, acting colorblind, acting like there is no race is to me acting like there's no problem. And that actually is meaning we will never be able to deal with the issue appropriately. And by being colorblind as well, if we go back to the original argument, it also assumes homogeneity in the races, that everybody is the same and we're not the same. Whether that's because of our skin color or whatever it might be, people are not the same and we cannot assume that. Absolutely. And I think uh, it touches about um, a controversy. And and I heard this quote um, last week in the US, actually, uh, saying that uh, race is the child of racism and not the other way around. And that's something we will be chatting about a little bit more. But we are different people see race because race have been created to separate us. So um, if we don't see race, we don't see inequality. It's not because we want to create racism. Racism created race, not the other way around. What an interesting quote. And it also feeds right back into the basic tenets of CRT, that race is a social construct that was created by by us. And of course, just ignoring that is ignoring reality, I think. And the final criticism against CRT is this idea of respect for the law. And they're kind of saying that CRT undermines respect for the law because law is there to create fairness and justice. And by saying, you know, or by criticizing really all of these things, we're not taking the law seriously. This is an absolutely massive issue. And we will certainly discuss this in further detail, Sabrina, because we are, after all, the Law and Society podcast. There are lots of limits to the law, and I'll go through these limits of the law quickly. And we, we, you know, we could sit here and criticize the law all day long for a hundred hours on this podcast, but we will not bore our listeners doing that. But there are some limits to the law, which are perhaps legitimate. But in the same way, you have to think, in my opinion, of the law as a dual function, both, you know, to achieve justice, but also it's it's the source of some injustice. So some people argue the law is insufficient to formulate racial solutions. So what this means is that the law is limited in itself to tackling race and social justice. It cannot fix problems in society. But I would argue perhaps you can work towards it. But maybe the law 
legislation in and of itself is not sufficient. And that's where I think CRT comes in, giving voice to people, experiences, etc. The reason why the law is not sufficient is because legal rights are, you know, indeterminate, which we talked about earlier on, means it's a bit vague. You can give somebody rights, just like saying you have everyone has equal treatment. It's not mean that everyone is going to be treated equally. So that's a, another limit to the law. And the whole context, uh, law and context rather approach shows us that we can not treat people equally by just saying you all get equal treatment. And that's what I think it means to be critical. There's also all of the criticism, which we talked about again, not so much uh, CRT not being so much of a theory as just an intellectual movement. And that means that it's perhaps too abstract, but you could levy this criticism on any theory, basically. You could just say this about everybody who's a philosopher. And sometimes for things as important as racism, people want more practical solutions, but we need to tackle, and as you said, Sabrina, identify the root of the issue, rather than, as I will quote Adrian K. Wing, who said that we cannot just put band-aids, so the American word for plasters, on the cancer of racism. It just doesn't work like that. So these band-aids would be the practical solutions by the law, for example. We can't just do that. The theory of CRT as well, and I think, again, this is an argument that a lot of people levy, is that it's loaded in terms of race. It's loaded in terms of elitism. If we just didn't see any of that, then it would be, it would be gone. We'll talk a bit more about that, how that's absolutely not true. And sometimes people also argue that the commitment to the rule of law to fix race issues has failed, as in the law has not solved race issues and social justice. Yeah, because it comes from within the legal system itself sometimes. And that's why voices are so important. Indeed, as well, the law can be argued to focus far too much on the perspective of judges and lawyers, and they're not really cognizant or uh, they don't really understand how the law actually works in practice. And this is probably because of a lack of representation, which we have to really think about. And this brings us on, therefore, very nicely to our next point, which is about us as educators. And Sabrina, you wanted to talk about legal education, so I think we should talk about it here now. You and I, as educators, have a huge task ahead of us, and we're only a drop in the ocean with this one-hour podcast today, but teaching this approach or teaching this theory of CRT or, you know, generally, how do you think we can do this? So as somebody who's an expert in legal education and diversity, as a big part of your research, anything you do that would embody in teaching bearing in mind critical race theory? Yes, this is something that I, um, I've been thinking about for a, a number of years. I think I really stopped and reflected on this during the pandemic um, and try to take stock of my own experience as a law student, which is something that we don't often do as um, instructors, lecturers, educators. We tend to think about our students, but not so much how we were students. But I was a student, as you highlighted, in Canada, France, and the U.S. So I have a potpourri um, kind of, of education. Um, so I understand quite well how we teach the law in the West um, and how I believe we might want to have different approaches to legal education. So just to give you a little bit of background of the experiences that I've had in continental Europe, in France particularly, um, that's what I can um, speak of. There's something about lectures, lecture style, kind of sitting in a room and listening and being told the law by the instructor. 
It's a very passive process. I remember taking pages and pages of notes uh, at Sciences Po and somebody just reading their lecture note to me and, and I had to take it all in because they were the voice of the law. They were kind of like a spokesperson of the law in a way. Um, a bit odd. Now it's, it's a bit odd to think about that experience and um, not sure it was conducive to the most learning. I think I did most of my learning in the books, but, but it's, it's one way of teaching. It's a quite a traditional way. In the United States or in Canada, but more so in the United States, I'd say learning the law is way more dynamic. And so people think that because it is more dynamic, kind of more in action, um, it's more progressive. And I'm not sure we should take that uh, uh, as a face value of uh, American legal education, uh, simply because of the product of what we call the Socratic method. I'm sure um, the listeners are familiar with it, but I should say that it is uh, the legacy of Christopher Columbus uh, Langdell. Uh, he imagined teaching law as a thinking process. And so basically what happens is that you have the lecturer, the instructor that ask a series of questions and um, they challenge you with those questions to encourage you to think like lawyers. So I remember very well my first class at Cornell sitting in my tort law lecture and Professor Heiss, um, who's a great professor at Cornell, said, Germain, because they have a seating chart and they look at you and say, Germain, state the facts of that case. And I was mortified because I thought, oof. My God, this is my first time. And, you know, it's 200 students in the room with you, uh, all looking at you. And um, you better have done your readings. Thank God I knew the facts of the case. And then he said, flip the rule and adapt to other facts. <laughs> I looked at him thinking, what do you mean by flip it? Do I turn around my book? What, what's going on here? That's not what he meant. He said, really play around with the rule and adapt it to the set of facts that I'm submitting to you and do that legal gymnastic. But But they do that not so gently as Professor Heist did with me. He was he was quite nice, <laughs> but usually it's a bit more brutal to reach that kind of distill the rule and reach that legal rule and adapt it to different scenarios. They do this as a very fast pace. And there's been quite a few things written on how playing with the legal concept is not encouraged really that much in the Socratic method. And it's quite a stressful, and I would say in my case, traumatic experience at times. And there's uh, actually um, quite a few uh, legal education journals that have been critical of this. And um, uh, there's interesting literature on this, although it's been saluted as being creating great lawyers, especially litigators, um, it can be quite traumatic. I think I view it uh, even more critically because I stand in the shoes that I stand in as a biracial person. And I saw it as really trying to breed one generic type of student. And it was not encouraging the voice of diversity or thinking differently about the rule of law. It was really kind of trying to instill a process in my mind of how to think about legal rules. And that is slightly dangerous, I believe. And that blocks out diversity and creative thinking about the law. I think at times we need to, to reflect further on this and we need to look at why we wanted that kind of systemic approach to creating legal minds or <laughs> not legal robots, but, you know, creating that that good exemplar law student. Well, it was because, you know, going to law school was really white privilege and white male privilege. You know, women in law school was not so long ago they were allowed in um, in the United States. And now things are different. 
women and gender diversity has entered the law school, um, disabled, neurodiverse, ethnic minority students too, which is fantastic and something to be very excited about. And I do believe that we should very much cherish these points of view that are um, considered non-traditional or atypical because they're not the white male point of view. So I don't think we should be telling students how to think about the law or how to think in a certain way about the law, but we should construct it together. So um, to answer your question, I prefer a constructivist approach to teaching of the law. I've written about this. I've also given presentation. Um, but what I try to do, and I hope my medical law students and my tort law students can speak to this, is really to proactively build together our knowledge of the law by building on pre-existing knowledge of the students and reflecting together on the law. That's much more interesting to um, the student body, but also to me, because I learn from my students. So um, students are not being fed by me the information, but together we play Lego, if you want, with the law. We construct it together. We assemble the building blocks under my supervision and guidance, if you want. So prior knowledge is key, and that means their experience Uh, And that's where it ties into critical race. For example, um, their multicultural backgrounds, their religious backgrounds are are fed into that learning process. And we discover new ideas and and be critical of the law together, looking at those different perspectives. So I encourage diversity and various backgrounds to come into play on how we study the law and study critical race theory or critical legal theory and all the like. Yeah, that's, that's how I do it. Fantastic. And I also think that this is something I really like to encourage. And more importantly, we need to hear the voices of our students. So when our students talk to us, we love it. And this is just a public service announcement to ask our students to all definitely contribute to conversations with us. Otherwise, we cannot learn from them, right? Absolutely. Pretty please do participate. I love a good debate. I love a good discussion, especially in my tutorial. So I, yes, I agree with you. Adrian could not uh, agree more. Um, so I should say that this whole reflection that I had um, really kind of was triggered by the Black Lives Matter movement. This is something that really uh, hit close to home for me as a North American biracial person. But uh, maybe you could um, tell us, Adrian, because I know you know a lot about this, how do you think the Black Lives Matters movement and Stop Asian Hate highlight the uh, importance of critical race study in our world right now? Yes, sure. And Black Lives Matter touched you very personally. Stop Asian Hate touched me very personally. Um, And I think this is a great context in which to discuss critical race studies. So BLM, the Black Lives Matter movement, has really made CRT and conversations like this about race ever more important. But also, and you and I, Serena, do a lot of this, the pandemic has really shone a light on this. But of course, BLM occurred in the context of the pandemic, so that cannot be um, taken apart. So we've researched all of this, Sabrina. We talk about the very concerning statistics, or we see the concerning statistics about how ethnic minorities, especially in the West, have had poorer health outcomes during the pandemic. So this is all the medical stuff like death rates, infection rates, hospitalization rates, which is your area, medical law. But for me, somebody who is more interested in social theories, In the context of non-medical aspects, we also saw serious socioeconomic inequalities in society from tangible issues like people facing poverty, like people on low incomes, like people losing their jobs. And this was in the way that 
these individuals were perceived because their lives were an experience of embedded racial inequalities that are already and have been embedded, it would seem, in many, many institutions. The law is one of the big ones. Police brutality that George Floyd's death brought to attention, it seems it was a very tragic event. There's no doubt about that. And it was one that was so important for inspiring calls for much more racial justice across the world and definitely more studies into race and demanded a critical view on this because it wasn't fair what happened to him at all. So, of course, at this juncture, we have to note that there are other issues at play here. Uh, we will talk about this in our in our conversation in episode six about the intersectionality stuff. George Floyd was part of the black community, but also many activists noted that there was a number of injustices and murders of black women by the police that have had much less attention shone on them, uh, such as Breonna Taylor uh, under the hashtag say her name. And we don't want to forget that. And I want to bring attention to all this because I know that hashtag say her name is far less known than the BLM movement even less known also than Stop Asian Hate, but it is equally important, if not even more important, because of its invisibility. And some argue that invisibility is due to the fact that Black women being brutalized, there's an element of intersectional gender oppression. But of course, that's a conversation for episode six. I just wanted to raise that here because I don't want to forget the women in the BLM movement as well. But for me, the context of hashtag Stop Asian Hate, as you mentioned, Sabrina, is very close to my heart. My identity as of a Chinese ethnicity, Malaysian national, which falls under the broader ethnic groups that scholars like our colleague at City in Sociology, Dr. Diana Ye, has called the East and Southeast Asian diaspora. I'm in the Southeast Asian diaspora. That's where Malaysia is. So we all might have heard of the hashtag Stop Asian Hate, which has come out of the pandemic again, mostly in the U.S., because of the racialized conversations around where COVID originated from, Wuhan in China, and how that virus was considered something so foreign and so alien to us in the West back in 2019 in December. And then after that, Donald Trump, the former president of the US, certainly did not help calling COVID the Chinese virus. And that's where all of this Asian hate started to come from. We didn't know how far COVID would spread after that, sparking loads of fears originally against the East and Southeast Asian diaspora in the US, but actually also in the UK. Lots of news articles I read, for example, about a, a student, I believe from Singapore, so of Chinese ethnicity like myself, getting beaten up in early 2020. I also suffered from some subtle forms of racism myself. We won't get into this, but I traveled in Europe just before we went into lockdown. And I was took, taken aside, asked where I had been, asked whether I had a cough. I saw loads of people who did not get this same treatment. And it was simply because of what I looked like, even though I was not ch from China or had not traveled to China. So I think the important thing to highlight here is that racism against the East and Southeast Asian diaspora is less focused on in the context of racism because of what is again coined by Ye as our model minority status. People often consider us, the Chinese diaspora, to be the good type of migrant, usually quite wealthy, usually quite intelligent. You know, who doesn't know a Chinese doctor, that kind of terrible stereotype. Therefore, the model type of migrant that the countries want. And the UK has certainly, in my opinion, as somebody who lived, lives here, peddled this notion in recent revisions of its immigration laws, saying that you have to make a certain amount of money, you have to know how to speak English. There's loads of other fairly tough conditions uh, before you are allowed to live, work or study here, not least those fees. 
But this does not mean that hate crimes and racisms against the model minority does not exist. So overall, these issues raised above in the context of the pandemic, especially BLM, etc. Critical race studies are super important. And I believe that when society finally decides they want to deal with them, we should do. And here is the conversation to spark that. So all of this to say that BLM is a social movement. It's it's a theoretical approach, but of course, there's a very strong political discourse now behind it. So I want to turn it over to you, Sabrina, to talk a bit more about um, the stance in the U.S., and the fact that the Republican Party in the U.S. is so op- opposed to critical race theory being taught in schools. And indeed, actually, in the U.K., the women's inequality minister, Kemi Badenoch, also said we shouldn't be teaching about white privilege in, in schools. What do you think about that? So much, so much. I think so much about that. <laughs> I, think, I think it's a very interesting point. I, I found it... Um fascinating, I wouldn't say amusing, because it's quite tragic, actually, to see how much an intellectual discourse, an academic discourse is no longer a a theoretical question, no longer an intellectual debate. I'm sorry, I will not call it an intellectual debate, but it's just becoming a very hot political issue. And as you highlighted very well uh, in what you just explained about the Black Lives Matters movement or um, Stop Asian Hate movement, um, it's um, the legacy of the Trump presidency. Uh, and the very tense debate that there was already prior to the pandemic on race in the United States. I think we've we've seen this a lot um, during our podcast today. But um, I think it's very important that I should start by stating the obvious that is not so obvious, is that race is both a biological myth and a social reality, okay? We classify people uh, by race because of their different skin color, But this is what we would call in biology, and I go back to my medical law roots here, as an adaptative trait. Um, uh, And so this is not uh, because we uh, are born in a certain way as humans. I mean, I I, I talk about the inception of mankind here. It's because we adapted to our environment that we have um, these certain traits, Uh, basically how we responded to to, to the light. Um, And that's why we see that the first humans that originated, for example, from the African continent, have darker skin because they were uh, more subject to light and that is, was a form of protection it has nothing to do with uh, the level of intelligence for example or any other traits that are associated uh, sometimes with race so it's just a question of exposure really there's no connection between your skin color and race because um, there is no race in the biological sense this is sometimes something that comes as a news flash to students in my class. But um, I want to remind everybody that we are very much alike. More than 99% of our genes are identical as humans. So there is no differences along racial lines that uh, stem from anything other than institutional racism. So um, the use of biology was used um, really in the times of, of slavery in the United States to try to divide power and abuse power. There needed some sort of justification for using those black slaves to do all this hard labor as a white man. And then they said, but because of their skin color, they were more, uh, they were less intelligent, they were less capable, and therefore they should be used as tools of, you know, constructing things or power rather than being seen as their um, human, as a human. So all of this to say that some scholars in the U.S. and elsewhere 
um, are talking about this uh, again and unpacking this and believe that our children um, should learn that um, from a young age, from the age of my daughters, for example, that the science of, of race is actually not a science at all. So I try to explain that uh, to both of my kids, particularly my older one, that um, there is no such thing as race, actually, that's completely constructed. So that takes us to issues of conservatives with critical race theory in the United States. So you see how I go from toddler to conservative in a heartbeat. So legislators in 20 states in the United States have introduced bills, um, so draft legislation, to restrict the teaching of critical race theory. You're going to tell me, is it really taught in middle school or primary schools? Well, I guess you know, not to be racist, is taught <laughs> in those schools in the United States. Uh, critical race theory, uh, in the words of um, Delgado, I'm not sure. But they do not want at all people to be discussing racism, sexism, or issues of equality in classrooms. More particularly, um, the Board of Education in Florida went as far as banning critical race theory from the classroom. So no discussions on this at all. We're all equal. We're we don't see color, okay, in Florida. Uh, so don't go get a tan because it doesn't matter. You are all the same color in Florida. Uh, so here, um, conservative activists are are really um, trying to 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 leverage the theory um, and uh, to use it to um, foster kind of division in society. They believe, however, that critical race theory is the enemy um, because it is teaching children to hate America and hate white people. Uh, and they believe it is a grassroots movement, which is it is not. We've just seen it's an academic, an academic movement, an academic approach. But they believe it's left wing, uh, grassroots groups, sort of hippies, coming together to to try to destroy white good people. So uh, of course I'm, I'm I'm exaggerating, but but if you do um, listen to Fox News, you you will get a little bit of that discourse. It's very much fueled by the viewership and the media and all this radical uh, discourse around race. So politically, they try to have their voters rally around this way of of, of what they think is white hate, um, and to vote off the liberal uh, policymakers and, and lawmakers. And they want to do that by starting at the lowest echelon, looking at school boards. So this is why actually when no one was really looking at school boards and, and this type of politics as a very kind of uh, lower local level, um, they uh, saw it as an opportunity to consolidate their base for uh, future elections. Here I should be clear, however, that I'm not saying that all Republicans are critical of um, critical race theory. I'm not saying that all Republicans are racist. Um, that would be actually racist on my part to say something like that. Um, that's not at all what I'm trying to imply. But there is a fringe um, of the very right wing portion of conservatism in the United States that do believe that that will help them win an election and that they can erase the history of institutionalized um, racism and they can consolidate their base to have a bigger turnout on the election and ga gain more political power. So that that's basically what's going on with critical race theory at the moment in the U.S. So Last but not least, we're coming to an end of this fantastic conversation we've had um, so far, Adrian. And, uh, you know, we uh, close our podcast always with the same question. So I want to ask you and have your take on this, too. Does context matter, especially in this framework of critical race theory and all this discourse? And how would you define law in context? 
I think it's a pretty rhetorical question, actually. It's so obvious. And of course, in this context, context matters. You've said it. I've said it. BLM, Stop Asian Hate, Say Her Name, The Pandemic, all of these, they've provided a fantastic place for CRT to really make their impact. And I think without context, law would just be considered like a bunch of meaningless words, really. Rules and regulations only work if you can actually rule or regulate something, surely. So when we ask everybody about defining law in context, I think that it's it's just saying like law, because law does not exist without the context it exists in. It does not exist in a vacuum. So it's almost terrible and neglectful for us to talk about law, not really in its world life context. So I hope that that answers your question. I realize how interesting this is when we ask our other guests it now. Oh, yes, it does answer my question. I love your answer. And I'm uh, very grateful we could have this kind of public open forum conversation. And I really hope we get more um, comments on this and we bring other people to the table to discuss these very important issues. So thanks, Adrian, for having a chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Not at all. It's been great to talk to you about it, too. We've got to have both of our views. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the Law and Society podcast brought to you by the City Law School at City University of London. We hope you enjoyed it and look forward to you joining us soon for another episode.